0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender and the exhausting complexities of immigrating to the U.S. Every episode this month, you've had me, Cat Chow, talking to someone smart about something I can't get out of my head. This is the last episode of the month where I'm in the host seat, so if you've enjoyed my other interviews, how about giving The Waves all the stars wherever you rate your podcasts? Not to be thirsty, but to be thirsty... Maybe you can leave a comment like, I love cat Chow or "Cat Chow is amazing. Just some suggestions. Who knows? Maybe they'll bring me back. So there's this story that Politico magazine published recently that's been on my mind. It's about a family from Afghanistan, these parents and their children, and they've been seeking resettlement in the United States but have been stuck in a bureaucratic limbo for years.
1: I mean, they have two precocious little girls who... You know, are kind of rambunctious uh, and would be extremely constrained under the Taliban if they were to still live there. Uh, in addition to that, you know, uh, coming to America, like the, both the parents, for example, grew up in. Most of their lives were spent under American occupation. So they are very familiar with the the promises that uh, American life makes. That's
0: the reporter who wrote the story, Tanvi Misra, who, disclaimer, she's also one of my very good friends. We're going to unpack the ways her reporting on immigration also overlaps with gender. But first, before we get to that, some backstory. September 11th, 2001. And about five minutes ago, as I was watching the smoke, um, a small plane, I, it looked like a propeller plane, came in from the west, and um, about 20 or 25 stories below the top of the center, it disappeared for a second and then exploded Behind a water tower, so I couldn't tell whether it hit the building or not, but it was very visible that a plane had come in uh, at a low altitude and appeared to crash into the uh, World Trade Center. If you were around then and old enough, you probably remember where you were when you heard about the planes hitting the Twin Towers. I was in sixth grade, and I remember our teachers gathering me and my fellow students into this common area, and we sat cross-legged on the floor when they told us about what happened. I remember the clips afterward of the crashes on Loop. And then also, there was President George W. Bush's response in that infamous speech.
1: And the world has come together to fight a new and different war.
0: The first, and we hope the only one, Of the 21st century.
1: A war against all those who seek to export terror and a war against those governments that support or shelter them.
0: The U.S. occupation of Afghanistan lasted for two decades until August 2021, right in the middle of the pandemic. President Biden announced that the U.S. was withdrawing its troops. The United States will begin our final withdrawal began it on May 1 of this year. We'll not conduct a hasty rush to the exit. We'll do it we'll do it responsibly, deliberately and safely. And we will do it in full coordination with our allies and partners who now have more forces in Afghanistan than we do. The New York Times reported that as the last evacuation flight departed, it left behind at least 100,000 people. And those 100,000 people are eligible for expedited U.S. visas. Here's Tanvi reading from her article, which follows one of those families.
1: Two years after the chaotic withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan, the world has turned its gaze towards other global catastrophes. New wars, fresh threats to democracy, rising inflation.
0: On today's episode of The Waves, Tanvi will talk about the time she spent with the Nisiri's, A father, a mother, their kids, one of whom has a serious medical condition.
1: In the United States, even if individual members of Congress continue to express concerns about the fate of Afghans still waiting to be resettled, the legislative body as a whole seems to have moved on. But for those Afghans still in the pipeline, the bureaucracy grinds on haltingly, bewildering and traumatizing in the name of process.
0: Tanvi will walk us through some of that bureaucracy
1: and she'll help us
0: understand more broadly the ways women, trans, and non-binary people often migrate for gendered reasons, how that affects the ways they're treated in their journeys and also at their destinations. We'll also talk about the actual process of immigration. All this today on The Waves when we talk about gender and immigration. Hey Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and you want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning, and while you're there, check out our other episodes too. Like last week's, I talked with the science journalist Rachel E. Gross about the term incompetent cervix, and also the misogynistic and racist origins of reproductive health. I'm biased, but it's a fascinating conversation. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Kat Chow, and I'm joined now by Tanvi Misra. Tanvi, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're usually forwarding each other ridiculous memes on Instagram or TikTok, so this conversation about your actual work feels like a really big treat. (laughs) (laughs) So, okay, tell me, this article that you wrote for Politico, and I'm going to read the headline, They thought their sick little girl would be safe in America. Then it denied her family entry. What made you want to start looking into this story about the Nasiri family?
1: Yeah, so this story has been many months in the making. I first heard about the Nasiri family in December. But, you know, even before that, basically since the withdrawal, I'd been hearing about all of the issues that Afghan families were facing in being able to resettle. So this was August 2021. And, you know, it's been well documented how chaotic that withdrawal was. And, you know, right before that, we had the Trump administration, which had already kind of stalled resettlement for Muslim refugees. So Afghanistan was already kind of hit by that. A uh, resettlement was already suffering because of that. And then you have this withdrawal, which creates the need for all of these additional families to flee because now their lives were in danger as the Taliban, you know, started to take everything back over. And that really solidified in August of 2021, on August 15th in particular, when the uh, Taliban took back control of Kabul And things just kind of spiraled from from there. And so I'd been hearing about these families for a very long time. And then when the Nasiris, you know, their case came to my attention in December, I started following them, had several interviews, followed them, their sort of progress on WhatsApp, and then was able to actually visit them in Doha earlier this year.
0: And that's where they've been basically in this administrative limbo as they wait to come to the United States.
1: Correct. So they've been living in a U.S. military base where Afghans are being processed. And they've been there pretty much since spring of 2022. So it's been over a year now. And the, the thing that really kind of, I would say, is uh, remarkable about this case is that one, the, the dad, Najib, worked for the U.S. embassy basically until the Taliban took over. So he was employed by the Americans uh, and therefore had some claim to a, a certain type of special visa that is, you know, basically offered to anyone who has worked for the Americans, you know, either as in the military, as like interpreters, for example, or in the U.S. mission. So in the embassies abroad. So that's sort of the first kind of point to kind of know about this family. The second is the the little girl who became sort of the emotional focus of the story her name is Ifat. She's six. And she has this like really, really debilitating genetic condition that has her skin blister and scar everywhere. And so she needs constant care.
0: You also write in your story that children who have this condition are sometimes called butterfly children.
1: Yeah. And, and that's because the skin is like just so delicate that it it's just so prone to... You know, wounds, and, and it's not just like skin that's on the outside, but also membranes on the inside. So she has trouble swallowing; she can't really swallow. She can't eat solid food, um, and then also like her cornea, like her eyes. You know, they get inflamed and dry, and she can't really see from time to time. So for all of these complications, she she needs special care. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, if you know, she's so prone to infection that she gets hospitalized every you know every few months, which has obviously become much worse in the conditions that they're been living in Qatar because they're like communal bathrooms they don't have their own space and it's kind of hard to control right for the parents who comes in and out of spaces like that so it's just been kind of awful that in addition to an already indefinite weight they also have they've been kind of as I write in the piece measuring the weight in terms of units of their their little girl's suffering which you know for the parents has been just kind of impossible to deal with.
0: And that line too, I mean, that really sat with me because not only are Ifad's parents, Najib and Atifa, sort of struggling with the bureaucracy of the American government in a country that is not even theirs, they're also trying to navigate healthcare for their six-year-old who is very sick. One of the things that you have shown in your story is how this family wanted to leave Afghanistan for various reasons. And, you know, in the news a lot right now, there is so much discussion about women's rights more generally there. How do you see this play out as it is related to the Nasiris?
1: I feel like gender considerations have always been at the backdrop of migration decisions, not just from Afghanistan, but from many other parts of the world. But in Afghanistan, certainly has been a big part of the academics often call push factors, the the circumstances that push people to flee or force people to flee. With the Nasiris, it's not ever been the explicit or only reason, but it has very much been a part of the context that has also led them to leave. I mean, they have two precocious little girls who are kind of rambunctious and would be extremely constrained under the Taliban if they were to still live there. In addition to that, you know, coming to America, like both the parents, for example, grew up in most of their lives were spent under American occupation. So they are very familiar with the the promises that American life makes, right? Um, So for example, when I was talking to the mom, when when she imagined life in America, a lot of it was around the freedoms her little girls and uh, freedoms for herself that she wanted, that she thought that she could get here. So for example, she talked about How she was really excited to see her girls enjoy just everyday things like going for picnics in the park, going swimming, doing swimming lessons, going to the beach, studying medicine or becoming, you know, whatever it is that they wanted to become because she was really encouraging of all of their dreams and aspirations. And then she had dreams for herself apart from taking care of her family, which, you know, she very much emphasized was really important to her. She also talked about how she wanted to go back to studying biology, which she had studied in university in Afghanistan. Or, you know, she kind of ended our whole interview and she was like, you know, also, I really just want to learn how to drive. And to me, you know, it was such a small everyday thing that a lot of us take for granted. But for her, it was very much um, one of the sort of central ways that in which she would be able to navigate life in America that was different and, and very much gendered, right, um, in, in back in Afghanistan.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And driving provides so much agency. I think you really, that's a really good example of the little things that she was seeking and the smaller desires. I thought that the way you framed and sort of showed her as, you know, this woman in her own right, this person who wants to come to the States for both her family, yes, and her daughter, but also her own livelihood – was really important.
1: Yeah, I think it was really important for me. I think whenever I write about migrants and particularly, you know, women or trans and non-binary people, like I, I just really want to emphasize that they have their own goals and desires that came from within them. Like they they are trying to make things happen for themselves and their families under immense pressure and under sort of unimaginable constraints, while also being subject to, you know, these baffling and traumatizing systems that they themselves have not created, right? But they are sort of dealing with them and making choices within those constraints. And I think I just wanted to really emphasize that they have their own aspirations, they have their own dreams, you know, they have their quirks and their flaws, and they are basically people just like anyone else.
0: Right. And I think that You know, this is sort of a theme that you and I have talked about in your many years reporting on migration and immigration, basically how important it is to frame these stories in a nuanced way, because many American outlets do get that framing wrong, or at least it's flattened. And that's something that you've critiqued. Can you talk about some of the tropes that you've picked up on in your reporting?
1: Yeah, definitely. I, I think, you know, being from a non-American context myself, I've just been very sensitive to the way that we frame rights movements and then also just, you know, the kind of things that women or queer people are subject to in non-Western contexts. So let me talk about Afghanistan specifically. Afghanistan and specifically the women in Afghanistan have always been kind of used as a talking point, And they've been portrayed as these women who need saving right? Mm -hmm. These women who are uniquely oppressed because of the Islamic culture within which they live. And this kind of narrative has basically been used by the West, the US government in particular, to justify military action, the occupation from, you know, its very beginning, its inception, to justifying a long drawn out war. So the narrative basically has been used to not only erase the very real activism and voices of the women in Afghanistan who've been pushing for their own rights for, you know, forever, but also to justify military action. You know, from the very inception of the occupation, the fact that women in Afghanistan, sort of the the plight of women in Afghanistan was used as as, oh, this is a collateral benefit of going in there is to, save these women. So, you know, it's always been used to kind of justify your own interests and and actions that um, really are rooted in your own, the interests of the US government. Yeah,
0: it almost becomes this way of co-opting this narrative to justify something that might not be quite related. Mm -hmm. And you make a really good point about the ways in which women in general throughout history and also American history have been used to shape and define policy where maybe there's this desire or want to protect women or also to assess how moral they are. And this is actually something that you've written about in some of your other reporting, the 1875 Page Act which was one of the first immigration restrictions, and it basically, you know, primarily targeted Chinese women. So my, my ancestors, if they had been trying to immigrate to the States then, would have had a harder time because maybe we would have been seen as immoral or perhaps uh, sex workers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the 1875 Page Act was one of the first immigration restrictions and it was enacted, you know, the whole like narrative around that was also extreme, as you said, like very moralistic. And the whole thing was basically premised on this idea that Chinese women were moral threats to the idea of the American family. And the structural context behind that was like, okay, so Chinese men, were coming to the U.S. to be able to work. And then obviously their partners and wives were often immigrating after to be with their families. But they were looked at as, you know, disproportionately looked at as sex workers and prostitutes. And and not saying that some of them were not coming to do that kind of work, but it's just that there was a broad brush with which an entire population was painted. And, uh, you know, just to justify a restriction that was really all-encompassing and and kind of sweeping in in that sense. And so there's been many kind of, you know, when we look at Afghan women, like this idea of needing to be saved has been very much a justification of not just going into the war, but staying in it so long. And it really doesn't have, not to say that Afghan women don't face oppression and and the kind of challenges but they talk about their own challenges right they they've been pushing for rights for themselves in the way that they feel fit for for centuries and they are not really consulted when those narratives are created and so i think that's sort of my larger critique of the way that a lot of reporting about afghanistan pakistan just south asia generally but other parts of the world as well you know often talks about these women as if they're not there in the room <laughs> Like, you know, they're just um, sort of these not really human, more symbolic than real people.
0: I think the word symbol is such a good one to describe that, where you read this reporting and often sometimes it can feel so othering. Or, you know, maybe this person fits into a trope that is exotified or sexualized or diminutive or something to that nature. And it's almost as though the person telling the story is just trying to get buy-in or, or support to try and cater to these stereotypes so people will understand
1: it. Yeah, that's definitely been the consequence, right? Sometimes like it's sort of the either trying to flatten things in ways that people already understand, but what that does, the consequence of that is that it further kind of flattens these people and and dehumanizes them. And then the second thing it does is it, it distracts from the U.S. government's own complicity in creating those circumstances that these women are fighting. Like, for example... This whole narrative about how the US has, has in the last decade or so, or as long as the war went on, were like elevating these women and upholding their rights and or and saving them essentially also distracts from the fact that the US backed the militia that created the Taliban in the first place, right? And that during the war, as always happens during wars, that women and children were disproportionately affected and distracts from the fact that when the withdrawal happened in uh, 2021 that the chaos with which that happened actually then ended up further compounding the kind of circumstances the danger the risks that these women face so i think it also distracts from our own complicity in the creation of the circumstances that these women are fighting for which they would you know if you ask them tell you about in detail but yeah it's just that you know often reporters either don't have time or don't really get to you know treat this as a nuanced issue with lots of points of view and
0: and lots of humanity too lots yeah. of humanity yeah i want to go back to the family now where you visited doha and you spent time with them you even went to the hospital to go with ifat to some appointments what is happening to the family now
1: i mean they're still there they're just waiting for to find out what happens next i think they just really want to get out of that situation it's been particularly difficult for them in Doha because they're basically not allowed to leave the camp for anything about medical appointments. So they don't it's not that they're free, right? They're not free to explore the city or go to like museums or you know take the children to playgrounds. And then the second big issue there is that if its condition really gets worsened uh, when it's hot out and in Doha, the temperatures rise to like 120 during the summer. So they're not able to go out at all. So they're literally in a prison in a certain sense, which is to say that they're, you know, kind of restricted to this boxy windowless space that they're allotted, like a small cramped room And they're really not able to go anywhere else during the summer. And that's with two little kids, right? I mean, kids need so much stimulation at that age. These two girls are, in particular, extremely, like, precocious, as I said, and, you know, extremely intelligent. And, you know, all they can do is provide them screens to busy them. And that's basically it. So that's sort of what they're waiting for right now. They're waiting for their appeal decisions, for the denials that they faced, for their resettlement to the United States. And then they're also waiting to hear back on whether or not they'll be able to, as an alternative, resettle in Canada if they're not able to resettle in the US. So just a waiting game again for them.
0: We're gonna take a little break right here, but if you want to get a window of what it's like to be in a group chat with me and Tumbi, cause why wouldn't you? Check out our Slate Plus segment, where today we're talking about this show called Made in Heaven, streaming on Prime Video. It's soapy and smart on gender and caste in India, and also it's kind of hot. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no hitting the paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Welcome back to The Waves. I'm Kat Chow, and I'm with the journalist, Tanvi Misra. We're talking about the many ways in which gender can complicate someone's immigration path, how it can be the impetus for leaving a place, but also how it can shape someone's treatment during their journey and at their destination. Okay, Tandy, you've been an immigration reporter for many years now, and you have also reported on immigration as it relates to gender. Tell me, what are some of the broader things that you've noticed?
1: I've found myself doing these stories that grapple with the intersection between gender and immigration for the last couple of years. And I think my big takeaway is actually exactly how you kind of framed it, which is that, Gender is very much, whether it is explicit or not, something that shapes both the decision to flee, the experience while fleeing, and then the treatment on the other side of the journey, right, at the destination, as you said. A bunch of stories I've done have to do with gender-based violence and asylum seekers who are fleeing Central America, for example, their experience, obviously, in their home country is very much shaped by that experience of, you know, being persecuted as a result of their gender. Right. Then they are sort of more, even more vulnerable as a result of that trauma or that, you know, what they're escaping essentially on the journey. And then when they come to the United States, that very thing that they're sort of seeking refuge for is often the thing that will complicate their experience, whether that is in detention or, you know, in an immigration court, because asylum law has really not caught up to those realities and to the realities of what people who've experienced gender-based violence need or just gender in generally and how that kind of manifests in our world today. So that's sort of what I've noticed as a a big picture sort of takeaway from the reporting that I've done in the last couple of years.
0: One of the articles that I wanted to bring up because it's been so provocative, and I've thought a lot about it since you wrote it, is this article in Lux magazine called Sex and the Citizenship Process. <laughs> Do you know, you remember this article? Of oh, course. I remember it, yes. <laughs> I remember when you were writing it too, and I was very excited for it to come out because, I mean, obviously you are a very good friend, but I just remember throughout the years having to trawl through different emails to basically forward to you to say, oh, this is actually evidence of your relationship with your partner from like 10 years ago, where we went to go see a play at the, I don't know, some theater in Washington, D.C. And I didn't even remember those moments or those hangouts, but they were something that you were able to use as part of your application.
1: Yeah. So this was very much a a piece that while I was writing and editing that I was dealing with my own immigration stuff that was very much related. So, you know, I think it goes back as a, I'll just say like a, a sort of big picture thing here, which is that immigrants always have to prove their deservingness. And I think what you were talking about there was like, it was an affidavit, I think, that you had to sign being like, oh, we know these people, they're legit, they're not trying to game the system. We went to this one play with them, you know, like so many years ago. So that means they're a real couple. And I think, you know, this story really focuses on that experience. I mean, that kind of immigration pathway, family-based immigration is the central pillar of the American immigration system, right? Like it's, it's based on this idea of family reunification, at least since the 1960s. So marriage-based sponsorship is the main way to do that. And what ends up being at question is the very legitimacy of your relationship, right? And relationships can look so many different ways, but I think what what the crux of the piece really comes down to is that there is a very narrow and specific thing that that the authorities are looking for here. And that can get confusing uh, for people who are applying for it. (laughs)
0: Describe this article because basically, it was these people who are in mixed status relationships. They're trying to submit evidence of their relationship to, as you said, justify the legitimacy of it. What was happening and what were officials discovering in these applications and what were people sending in?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'd been hearing for several years before I wrote this piece that you know, and then I, I have, like, I'm on immigration Twitter, so that I have all of these, like, you know, USCIS officers, lawyers, and they'll sometimes start this, like, thread where they're essentially kind of gossiping or, or venting about this. And <laughs> what it was was this phenomenon. People were sending in explicit materials as a part of their marriage-based immigration paperwork.
0: So they were trying... Explicit materials. Okay, define,
1: <laughs> define that for us. We all want to know. So it was, like, things like, oh, my God, I, I heard the craziest things, but it was anything from nudes or like explicit videotapes, VCRs, one one lawyer mentioned, to things like pregnancy tests, like used pregnancy tests. Oh, wow. And uh, someone also talked about like an underwear, uh, just the whole uh, um, you know, variety of inappropriate uh, materials. <laughs> People are getting really
0: literal because they have to, but are those pieces of evidence considered effective?
1: No. And I, I should just like really emphasize and re emphasize that actually on their website, USCIS, which is the agency that does the decision making on this has explicitly said not to send those things in. So no explicit materials, nothing that's like actually showing you the sexual act. No sex tapes, no nudes, no sex tapes and no pictures of like a childbirth, uh, which also people send because it is sort of related to so that is actually going to be bad for people if they send it in. It tends to raise a red flag and send, um, you know, flag their case for like fraud and things like that. So do not do that, if anyone's thinking of doing that. So it's not actually effective, but it is something that I think is a, uh, <laughs> a consequence of miscommunication and like mixed signals,
0: kind of. I mean, also a part of me would be like. You're questioning this relationship? Well, I'm going to stick it to you. But I mean, I understand how that also might not be the most (laughs) effective thing. Another thing that you wrote about in this article was about how couples that seem like a match might actually get less scrutiny than others in this process. And also that race is definitely a factor where white couples might also get less scrutiny than, you know, immigrants who are brown or are people of color. Can you say more about what, you know, constitutes as a nice match or how that sort of plays out in this process?
1: Yeah, so when I was reporting this, I heard from a number of people that the way that the system looks at these marriages is they're sort of looking for homogenous couples. Okay, mm. Homogenous was the word that one of my sources, a lawyer, who's been doing these kind of applications for a long time, used. And what that means is homogenous in terms of class, race, nationality, age, like all of these things that if you are not that, it might raise the level of scrutiny just a tad. Interesting. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah. And it kind of goes back to this idea of what America sort of considers both a legitimate marriage or a le- legitimate sort of relationship, right? And what it wants to have, what what it wants to bring in, what is like a favorable looking couple that is deserving of entry into nationhood, right? Like mm-hmm. that is deserving of citizenship. And so in that way, you know, even if like a regular couple, both both people American may not face that kind of scrutiny or may not face that kind of specific suspicion right around their relationship even if they have the same traits you know they might be like uh, like an interracial relationship or like a you know queer relationship or whatever it is might not face the same kind of scrutiny from the government within the immigration context they will right or they might even face more so i think that was what was really interesting to me because again it kind of raises questions about what these assumptions are that are coded into the immigration system and about our idea of the American family. And then also,
0: I mean, I love that you just used that phrase, what ideas are coded into the American system, where one thing that you do really well and that you point out is the the fascinating history of sex and gender policies in the U.S. that you write about with the Page Act, which we mentioned in the first half of this conversation, but then also, you wrote about, for example, in 1937, the Jigolo Act, uh, which codified marriage fraud, basically. Can you say more about that?
1: Yeah. So I, I think these are all these different sort of incremental legislation that codified these ideas of what marriage is and what the American family should be. And so... The Jigolo Act, for example, which was, that's sort of how it was referred to. And the, the actual name was something much more technical. But, you know, it perpetuated this idea of the immigrant as someone trying to game the system. Okay, someone who's almost selling themselves to be able to gain these advantages of, you know, American citizenship and American rights. And that's sort of what created this idea that is now still baked into how authorities think of these marriages. I mean, you know, one of my sources said they're skeptical, like the baseline is that they're skeptical of all interstatus marriages, all mixed status marriages. That's sort of the baseline at what you're coming in. And so then you have to go over and above and prove the legitimacy and prove that you are not an immigrant who's trying to gain the system. And then, you know, as you said, like we, we talked about race and, and gender, You know, if you're a woman from certain parts of the world, like, you know, maybe Southeast Asia or like certain other countries where there are like particular tropes associated with women. Of that race, of that nationality, For sure. then you kind of have even more scrutiny, right?
0: Perhaps being seen as a sex worker, just to be explicit. Uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. So I think it's like all of this extremely complex and and kind of compounded assumptions about and stereotypes and tropes that are kind of all you know tossed in there.
0: One thing that you also mentioned too is that up until what the nineteen nineties, immigrants could be denied if they looked quote, like a lesbian, where there was also just so much homophobia baked into this, too.
1: Yeah. And, you know, all of that at that time was kind of categorized under, as it was in many other parts of American law, into like sexual deviancy, quote unquote, or like these, these ideas of like deviancy. So being gay, being trans and all of these that are much more, um, you know, I mean, they're still under attack, but these identities were very much weeded out and excluded very explicitly from the system. I mean, that, that example of the a woman who was denied entry for, quote unquote, looking like a lesbian, that was someone who would come from Mexico and cross the border to work and go back. So they were not even seeking full immigration status. They were just trying to enter and return as they always did. And this person was denied entry because they didn't look right or they didn't look, they didn't present as what authorities felt a woman should present as, right? So it was very much a disc- like it's it's so based in someone's discretion and someone's own personal ideas. And that's also still true for the system, which is that it really varies from person to person. It, it varies on if you're lucky or not, if you have a person who's looking at your case who embraces these ideas or doesn't. Either way, they're kind of baked into the system. So they're there for you to kind of take up and use and check a box and say, okay, you're not allowed because you know, morally, you don't seem like a good fit.
0: Morally, you don't seem like a good fit. But I mean, also, stepping back, this whole institution of marriage is given so much weight in um, America in particular, where if you are married, then you also have the benefits of healthcare. Um, Your taxes can look different. Your banking can look different. So many institutions can be different based on whether or not you are married. And so... Immigration also is no different. Can you talk about that tension between marriage as this very moral thing, how it plays out with regards to immigration?
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think I wanted to end the piece by looking at kind of zooming out and looking at marriage as it pertains to Im- immigration rights, right? And and this whole idea that you're, you know, kind of looking at what is under this idea of the immigrant being this kind of person who games the system in order to, like, access these rights. Yeah. And like, what if, okay, let's say that was true. What does that mean? Right? What, do, what are we actually looking at here? And I, so I wanted to kind of like dig a little bit deeper. What I found was marriage, right, for everyone else, is very much a calculation on multiple different levels, right? You are looking at, like you said, things like tax incentives, housing stability, healthcare access, but then also things like social perks, right? Community, companionship. Sometimes it's like about physical mobility, right? Like you're in a small town, you want to escape that small town. You kind of like get married to someone in a big city. It can be something as simple as that. Those can be parts of the calculus, but if American citizens marry, they're actually even encouraged to do so for reasons that are just not not just about love, right? They're about all of these other things, all of these structural benefits, as I say. So in the immigration context as well, people do often marry for these reasons as well. I mean, that's a part of the calculus. I mean, being able to stay in the same country as the person you love and be able to have some rights uh, that you don't have to depend on your partner, you know, who's an American citizen for. Exactly. Yeah. is very much like a part of the calculus for a lot of people. And, but it's it's not seen as such. So that's what sort of my, the point I was making there was that in the immigration context, like if you allude to the fact that you are kind of choosing to marry someone for among other reasons, these reasons that you can, so that you can live, you know, continue to reside in the same country and have rights, right? Um, So you can have the additional rights that come with being a US citizen. Um, Then that actually has them view your marriage as not legitimate.
0: It almost cheapens it, right? When the system itself is built on these values and ideas and wants.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just a different standard, I think, is what the conclusion was, right? It's a different standard that these marriages between citizens and non-citizens are looked at than marriages between two citizens, for example. And the consequence of that is also really high because the additional scrutiny means people, you know, maybe get confused and send these dudes on one hand. (laughs) But on the other hand, like it also can sometimes mean something very serious, which is family separation, like people... You know, who don't have the resources to have great lawyers to advise them and things like that may not be able to meet these double standards, right? And so they might be separated and their entire like families, lives, sometimes kids are in the mix, can be separated as a result of that. So there's actually a very serious consequence. And there's so much at stake. Yeah, absolutely. The stakes are just so high. And that's why people try to throw everything that they can (laughs) at the wall. So as to say, sometimes, even if it is misguided, it actually kind of makes sense in that context. It makes complete sense. I mean, what
0: could be... (laughs) It is indisputable, my relationship with this person, if you have my sex tape. (laughs) We have consummated our marriage.
1: Why can't you see this? The funny thing about this is that when we were talking about our own evidence for for our green card application, I actually thought that maybe we could send text messages that, you know, from our, like, we'd met on a dating site. And so like, maybe we should send some of those text messages. And my partner, who's a U.S. citizen, was like, absolutely not. The state does not deserve to be in our text messages. And I was like, wow, that is U.S. citizen privilege. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> that you have a claim to privacy? Wow. That's, that's not something that I can, you know, even um, try to say that I have. Yeah,
0: the U.S. government deserves your first, uh, your first <laughs> message to your partner.
1: <laughs> right. And your firstborn. So you didn't send it? Oh, no, we didn't, we didn't include those.
0: Tanvi, it has been so great having you on to talk about things not related to memes or our dogs. Uh, thank you for coming
1: on. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun.
0: That's our show this week. I'm Cat Chow. I wrote and produced this episode. You can follow me on Instagram at catchow_ underscore. You can follow our guest Tanvi Misra on X at Tanvi M. The Waves is produced by Shainer Roth and Vic Whitley-Berry. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at at thewaves@slate.com. If you liked what you heard, give us all the stars wherever you rate your podcasts. And remember, you can leave some nice comments about me. I love Cat Chow, whatever you want. The Waves will be back next week. Different host, different topic, same time and place. Thank you for being a Slate Plus member. This is your weekly segment, and I'm very excited about it. I'm your host, Kat Chow, and I'm here with my friend, the journalist Tanvi Misra, to discuss a very popular TV show that's streaming on Prime Video. It's called Made in Heaven. So, Tanvi, you made me watch this show, and for listeners... I basically have this rule or agreement with you and another one of our friends where you can basically make me consume or read or watch something once a year that you can't stop thinking about. Um, And this show in particular is Made in Heaven. I basically was forced to watch it because one of our group chats just could not stop talking about it.
1: Made in Heaven believes the wedding should celebrate the couple. The theme should tell their story. Love. Love. Birds, roses, and skies, pink and blue, blush and sparkle. This is your wedding. Welcome to the parivar. Oh my god! I love it. I'm ready. We like this classy style, but people will not understand, they right? will think we are not spending. More gold? Yes! yes. We are in service of the bride. This Ladki is shadi karo. That girl needs to be pure. Pure?
0: Like he? Can you in like 30 seconds describe or try and describe Made in Heaven? Like for someone oh a God. listener who has never watched it before <laughs> and also like an American
1: uh, audience? Um I would say it is a show about how weddings um it is a show that uses weddings to Uh, to create a microcosm of extreme wealth inequality and the other sort of differences that come up in Indian life today. That was just some of our
0: Slate Plus segment. If you want to hear the whole thing, go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a Slate Plus member today. Slate.com slash the waves plus.